0: This is what's called a So What Sunday. We're teaching through Genesis 1 through 11, and in Genesis 1 through 11, it feels like every major controversial issue in our culture is being poked at by God. And um, so we decided to do is, is we teach through Genesis 1 through 11. We're gonna pull out every couple Sundays and we're gonna do what's called a So What Sunday. We're gonna address one or two major issues that are relevant for our culture, for our church, and uh, we want to do some training on them. And so today is going to be one of those So What Sundays. Um, in fact, let me just walk through the next three weeks with you, what we're going to be doing. Um, today, we're going to be dealing with the issue of gender. And the title of this sermon is God's, uh, Creation dec- Declares God's Design for Gender. Um, next week, actually, we're going to take a pause from Genesis and So What Sundays, And Mike Boyle is gonna come in and I asked him personally um, to preach a really specific message for Village Church. Um, I asked him to preach a message on how to overcome being hurt by your church. The reason I did this should be apparent to most of you, but many of us in this room have experienced a lot of pain and a lot of wounding from our church background. It might be the church you grew up in, maybe the church you came to before here, maybe some of you at Village Church. Um, It's been a place of deep wounding. One of the things I've asked Mike to do is to preach a sermon that does two things. Number one, it is very practical and is encouraging, and it helps us process. I mean, the last thing we wanna do is move forward in the next decade of our lives carrying all of this bitterness, and baggage behind us. And uh, we really desire Village Church to be a place of true healing. And um, what that means, though, is a lot of people walk into our doors and they've been really, really wounded. So we wanna bless um, you through that. The other thing we wanna do is create a resource for you um, in the form of a sermon where um, some of you have friends and family all over the country and world who have been really, really wounded by their experience in the local church. And uh, so we wanna give you something that you can say, hey, um, our church preached a message on this, how to overcome um, hurt from your local church. And uh, our hope for you is that it'll be encouraging and uh, maybe give some clarity to what some of you are going through. And uh, the challenge that he's gonna have, honestly, is that every human being is different. You know, we all come from such different places, um, but hurt is hurt, and uh, it is, it's unbelievable. We, we say at Village Church, dad wounds, sex wounds, church wounds, the three most difficult wounds to overcome. And most people don't take seriously the church wound until they experience it. And when they do, they realize that it's deep and it's powerful. And so we wanna bless you with that. And so pray for Mike uh, and that for next week. And then the week after that, we're gonna do another show at Sunday. We're gonna deal with um, sexuality and marriage. So if you, if you don't want your kids to ask those questions yet, just don't bring them to church that week, But put them in the children's ministry or do something. But um, that that's Sunday, it's, it's gonna be PG-13 in here. It should be fun. All right, I wanna ask you three... Questions that every Christ follower needs to be clear headed on. And by clear headed, I mean you got to have an answer quick and it's got to be helpful and true. You got to get clarity on these three questions. Question number one What am I for? Uh, the opposite of this would be What am I against? And here's what you need to know. Um, everybody. What you're against. Everybody knows what the church is against, right? Um, But here's our problem we have not cast a compelling vision about what we are for what we are for. And so um, I'm against murder, I'm against stealing, I'm against adultery, etc. But more importantly, what am I advocating for? So there are two ways to create, we'll say, a culture. One would be with a lot of law. Don't, 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 don't. The other way to create culture is through vision. And so tell me what you would rather have. Would you rather have a dad who looks at you and says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and then sends you into the world Or would you rather have a father who comes around you and creates a compelling vision for the future and says, walk this way? What would you rather have? We'd rather have vision any day. And here's what our culture is dying for. Our culture is dying for a compelling vision. And there are so many competing visions in this world about what is good and what is healthy and what creates human flourishing. But we, the church, need to begin to equip ourselves with a vision that, is, that, that creates human flourishing. So people say, Michael, what are you for? Here, here's what I say. I am for humans flourishing to the glory of God. I am for people coming alive as men and as women, sexually in their marriage, etc., for the glory of God. I want to see people happy as they understand their designer's intention. That's what I want to see. I'm for that. Before I'm against anything, I'm for this picture. Number 2. Who am I? Who am I? Who assigns my identity? I want to give you the simple answer, and this is what I tell my kids over and over again. Anybody who I work with and I disciple, any new believer, let me tell you one of the most simple responses that's revolutionary. I am who God says I am, period. That's it. I am who God says I am. Now, there are so many competing identities that the world and culture and friends and family want to assign to me, but I got to get clarity first and foremost, I am who God says I am. And that is very fundamental here. Uh, Number three, what is the most important thing about me? What is the most important thing about me? You know with your kids, they're being told the most important thing about you is your sexuality, it's your identification, it's your gender, it's your hobbies. There's all, all of these values that are being assigned to people, you're important because of who you love or what you like or what impulses you have. And, and here's what I wanna say. Uh, I wanna say the most important thing about me, it's not my hobbies, it's not my impulses, it's not my attractions. The most important thing about me is that I am made in the image of God. God that I reflect an image, the image of my designer, and that I am created to be a son or a daughter of him. I am made in the image of God. So who has permission? Who has permission in my life to assign my vision, who, to assign identity, and to communicate my value? I wanna just tell you straight up off the bat, it is Jesus Christ through his word, and that is it. And moms, dads, disciple makers, grandparents, here's the deal, we gotta get clear on God's vision so that we can give that to the next generation. We need to get clear on identity and who God says people are, and we need to hand that off to the next generation. We need to get clear on value. Your value is not bound up in performance, but it's bound up in the fact that you are infinitely valuable, Christian and non-Christian, because you're made, in the image of God. We have to get very clear on that and we can't just tell our kids, no, 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 look out, look out, fear, 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 fear. We need to cast a compelling vision. And so on these So What Sundays, there's gonna be three big categories that we try to um, address here. Number one this morning will be gender. Number two will be sexuality. Um, In two weeks also will be marriage. And um, so here's the question, right? Uh, Creation and the word of God are declaring the designer, the architect's intention um, through our bodies and through scripture. Through our bodies, through our biology, and also through scripture. And here's a question I have for my son and I have for my daughters. Here's a question I have for new believers. Who gets to tell them what is masculine and what is feminine? Who gets to tell them what does it mean to be a man. I get what it means to be a male, but who gets to tell my son what it means to be a man? And who gets to tell my daughters this is what it means fundamentally at its core, at the very base, right? These principles of what it means to be a woman that transcend culture. Now, now here's, here's what I'm gonna try to do. I wanna try to help you with this. I wanna try to get to the bottom of this and give you um, tools that will help you make disciples. That's my desire. And for some of you in this, in this room, this is gonna be a, a mirror and you're gonna look at your own life and say, am I really being a man according to what scripture says that is? And am I really being a woman according to what scripture says that is? I wanna tell you a couple things in the front end here. Um, I don't wanna pick a fight. (laughs) Um, I don't have the energy to, right? Uh, What I do wanna do is encourage you. I wanna cast a vision for you. This isn't gonna be like an anti-culture sermon. Uh, This is really just gonna be about, uh, here's what God's word says, this is what we get to hear, and we gotta figure out how does this translate into our culture, into our families, into those who make disciples. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at masculinity and femininity from a just purely scriptural perspective. Um, I want you to imagine we're on a deserted island and we don't know anything else about what's happening in culture. And we just had the word of God and we were able to get down to kind of like the oomph, the, the very foundations, the building blocks of what is a man, what is a woman, what is masculine, what is feminine? Like what would the scriptures say about these fundamentals? I'm not really interested in being politically correct because more and more the Bible just never is. Uh, And so my goal today is to kind of distill some of these scriptures to put them together and help us organize this, hopefully in a way that helps us thrive and helps the generation after us thrive as well. So let's get some terminology down. Uh, There is some confusion on what the word gender means and on what the word sex means. So let's talk about the word sex. Sex very simply refers to your biology, male, female. Um, In your DNA, you can break all of humanity down to male or female. This is your sex. Gender is actually a little bit different. Um, Gender has to do with the cultural expression of your maleness, your femaleness, your sex as masculine or feminine. Um, And so somebody might be a male biologically, but act feminine, Okay? The, the actions are their gender. The entity, the essence, their biology is their sex. You could be biologically a female, but act masculine. And so there's a difference between gender and sex. And so just so we're clear on what some of those words are. Um, now, gender roles in scripture are objectively just a little bit confusing. So I wanna share with you a New Testament principle I think that will help you just kind of understand how the Bible communicates about gender and roles. And I think we can get some clarity here. Uh, The principle goes like this. The Old Testament describes the New Testament assigns. Generally speaking, this is really fair. So you get to the book of Genesis and Genesis is mostly narrative, it's story. And in stories, they don't tell you the point they show you the point, which is why interpreting narrative can be a little bit challenging because it's not outright telling you everything you wanna know and propositional facts and laying them out in an orderly way. It's showing you through narrative and story. Well, in God's genius, um, the New Testament comes along, and much of the New Testament is narrative, but much of it is actually just uh, propositional statements. And so what happens in the New Testament is that it takes many of these narratives, and it tells us exactly what it means. So when we look at um, the, what, what is masculinity, I'm going to show you this, what the Old Testament describes, and then what the New Testament ass- assigns. And you're going to see this, but you have to understand that one of the tricks and challenges of reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that it's communicating a ton, but it's not communicating it through propositions, but through story. And that's a little bit confusing for some people. But here's the big, big picture. It's sad to me that we even have to say this um, for Christians, um, because many, many Christians are going to hear me saying something differently. So I got to say this accurately. Here it goes. Um, The big picture is that men and women are equal in value and complementary in biology and role. The reason why this is sad for me to say this is because many people have grown up in churches where they don't believe the pastor actually believes that men and women are created equally in the image of God with equal value. And uh, if there is at all any point where there is something communicated in this sermon or in this pulpit where somehow uh, men and women are not both equally and distinctly and uniquely made in the image of God to the glory of God with infinite value, um, then I'm not communicating accurately. But the second part of this is where culturally it does become a little bit controversial, that they are complementary in both their biology and in their role. Now, when you take a little kid and you tell them this, they'll say, of course, Men and women are made differently. Now, here's one of the assumptions here, that God is not arbitrary. He doesn't create distinctions because he's bored. Everything he does is on purpose. So what we have to discern is, okay, God, why foundationally did you create men and women, male and female, so differently? What were you doing communicating and trying to accomplish here. And so um, obviously much of the world wants to flatline masculinity and femininity, right? But as Christians, the Bible doesn't really give us permission to do this. We have to ask the question, why did you make men the way you did? Why did you make women the way you did? What were you really up to in this? What is the architect's design and intention? And that's one of the things we want to uncover here. So uh, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter one. um, And honestly, uh, we're going to be all over, but if you stay in Genesis one, two, and three, the majority of scriptures um, are going to be taken from those texts. So go to Genesis one, verse 26. Uh, They'll be on the screen as well, but so you can look at them in your Bible. Genesis 1, and 27 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's the outline of my sermon. I wanna answer six questions that this text brings up. And here are the six questions. Number one, what is God's image? Number two, what is man's image? Number three, why are gender roles rarely disconnected from marriage? You're going to see this in scripture. We're going to talk about this. Number four, what is masculinity in scripture? Number five, what is femininity in scripture? Number six, why is there so much darn disagreement on this in the church? Michael, isn't this just cut and dry and super Simple. Well, we're going to find all that out. Now, we're going to fly in your notes. Your notes actually are going to be different than what I'm doing on here. We decided to throw a little bit of an audible this weekend, and uh, we're going to dig deep into this. So scratch out your notes, and you can write down these six questions, and that will uh, be the outline for the sermon. All right, ready? Number one, what is God's image? What is God's image? God's image is two things. It is trinity and it is complementary. God's image is Trinity, and it is complementary. Now, Trinity very simply means that there is one God revealed in three persons. Um, God is not as uh, simple, maybe, as we'd like him to be. You have the Father, you have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one God revealed in three persons, and each person has a distinct role, role, And function to play. Now, pop quiz, village, church. um, Is each member of the Godhead fully God? The answer is yes. yes. All right, good. You're you're orthodox. There we are. That's good, right? We're still Christians in the room, right? All right. Um, Do they have the same role? No. Is one more important than the other? No. They're all fully God, equal in divinity, but complementary in role. So in in, in the Trinity, the Father is the leader. Um, He calls the shots. And the Son is never like, but I want to be the leader, right? Uh, In fact, the Son does whatever the Father tells him to do. And what's interesting is that the Holy Spirit has a different role. The Holy Spirit obeys the Father and the Son. So when the Father tells the Holy Spirit to do something, the Spirit goes and does it. And sometimes the Son tells the Spirit to go do something, the Spirit does it. And the Father, we see, is ordaining. He's in control of all things the Son is overseeing and implementing, and the Holy Spirit is sustaining. They're equal in value, complementary, but they're one in deity, and there's no lack of a a value in any single one of them. And so this is just kind of fundamental. And so in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you see this like plural language, let us make man in our image, right? And already Genesis 1 is kind of hinting at the complexity of the nature of God. And here's what we see, that God— is going to make man in his image, which is why we need to understand what is the image of God. It's Trinity and it's complementary. And so when God makes man, he's going to make man in his image male and female. We're going to see they are equal in personhood, but they are complementary in nature. This is what it means to be made in the image of God to be male and to be female. So you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and um, uh, a pretty controversial verse, but we'll just go with it, for, get to the end here. Uh, here's what it says. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. This is actually talking about um, probably husbands, but definitely men here. Um, that husbands, uh, in talking about your home and your marriage, you have a leader, and his name is Jesus, okay? And then it goes on and says, the head or the leader of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is who? God. In fact, in the New Testament, almost always, when you have capital G, little o, little d, this is referencing the Father. And so what we have right here is we even see equality of divinity, but complementary nature of their relationship to each other. So what is the image of God? Number one. Number two, what is the image of man? And very simply, it goes like this. Mankind is male and female that when God wanted to magnify his image through humanity, he did it through two different sexes, the male sex and the female sex. And it, it should just be noted here for the sake of clarity in case anybody might assume we're saying something we're not, men and women are equal in value and personhood. Can I get an amen on that one, right? Good, all right. But different and complementary in biology. Now that should be like such a no duh for you. Um, But in the church, actually, this is now beginning to be controversial. At the end, we'll get to why. Complementary in biology, psychology, sexuality, even capacity. I'm not talking about men or women can do more, but just different abilities and even roles. That even bound up in why God made a male physically, biologically, hormonally, Uh, The way he did, and why he made a woman the same physically, biologically, hormonally, relationally, psychologically, the way he did, um, actually on purpose and with intentionality. And we're going to uncover some of this. Now, I have to answer one question that many of you would never know to ask, but to bring clarity to this, let's go for it. Number three, why is gender in scripture so tightly connected to marriage? So now here's the deal, I want to give you a foundation uh, this morning for what is masculinity and what is femininity for kids, for singles, for married people, for people who are widowed or widowers, I want to give like a flat foundational application of this and it's going to apply differently to singles and to married people, will it not? Now here's the deal, when we look at scripture and we try to figure out what is masculine, Almost every definition and description of masculinity and almost every definition and description of femininity are connected to marriage. So here's what we have to do. We have to kind of draw out what are some of the foundational principles in Scripture about manhood and womanhood, but you're gonna find that a lot of these are found in the context of marriage. I wanna tell you something that might be maybe a a new thought for some of you, Um, but here's what it seems. It seems in Scripture that marriage seemed to be God's default design for humanity in creation. That when God created humanity can you hear me? There we go marriage was going to be the default for everybody. So God gave everybody a, a sex designation male, female. And then he gave them the gift of sexuality that was intended to be used in the context of marriage. And when you had marriage, you had the sexual relationship which allowed you to procreate, right? Uh, Before the years and and the time of birth control, guess what? You got married and then you started having kids pretty quickly. This is like standard operating procedure through most of history, okay? And so it seems that what God was doing before the fall is that he created a mechanism so that marriage would be the standard expectation for most people. Now, Did the fall of man happen? The answer is absolutely. And is marriage God's will now in light of sin in this world uh, for every single person? Of course, the answer is no. There are some people that God calls to singleness. And to be single means you have to resist the God impulse of your of your sex and your sexuality and your desire for oneness. You have to resist that and you have to control that. That is in most of humanity. And so here's what we find, that there seems to be this reality that God creates us for this trajectory, but because of sin in this world, not everybody actually follows through on it. Some people wanna be married and they can't. Some people got married and then were divorced. Some people got married and their spouse passed away. Um, Some people were legitimately called for their entire lives to be single by God. And so we find here, though, is when we talk about gender and all this stuff, um, that it's almost always connected to marriage, but it does not mean that to be a man or to be a woman means to be married. It just means we gotta do a little bit of work together to figure out what is masculinity and what is femininity. It's a hard word to say, by the way, femininity. All right, question number four. What is masculinity in scripture? Let me give you a broad definition. My goal is to give you memorable things that you can take home to your children and your grandchildren and those you disciple and you can help them understand this. Men thrive in their masculinity. You notice that it's hard to say masculinity is this. We talk about men thriving in it rather than defining it too narrowly. Men thrive in their masculinity when given responsibility to be sacrificial leaders, fruitful providers, and loving protectors over someone of great value. I'm gonna say this in the front end, I'll say it on the back end, because some of you um, are transferring ideas and thoughts to me that I personally don't have. So let me just put them on the table for you. Uh, I'm raising two daughters, and uh, I'm gonna give you the answer at the beginning. The answer is yes. Am I raising my daughters to be sacrificial leaders, fruitful providers, and loving protectors? What is the answer? Yes. Some pastors have gotten themselves into unnecessary trouble by saying men only do this and women only do this. Uh, That is not fair nor appropriate nor is it biblical. Um, What I am saying is that men uniquely thrive as men when these things are happening. That there is something about being a man that when you don't do these things, when they're not a part of your life, you struggle as a man that God creates men to flourish in a way that he does not create women to flourish when men do these things, okay? And so um, let's look at them one at a time. Men are designed to be sacrificial leaders. Um, I, I like this because most of the culture isn't going to take an issue with this. But here, here's what we see. The Old Testament describes this. Um, and, and there are multiple things we could talk about. But do you want to be here for four hours? Probably not. So we'll, we'll be lickety split and we'll give some summaries here. Um, one of the chief things that you see is that Adam in Genesis names. Uh, it actually says this multiple times. He names the animals. He names um, the woman. He is naming, naming, naming. Naming is a sign in Jewish literature of authority. He who Names has leadership and responsibility and authority over that person. But in the New Testament, um, this concept of the masculine leadership is all over, all over the place. Um, One of the places, in a scripture actually, we just read, we'll put this back up on the screen. uh, The New Testament brings even some clarity here. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, but the head of a wife is her husband. Now, here's the deal. If you're gonna have a man who's created to be a leader, and if this man's gonna get married, right, do we need to start developing this kind of leadership in him outside of marriage? The answer, of course, is yes. So from a very young age, whether my son ever gets married or not is aside the point. I am gonna create context and environments in my home and in our life where I'm going to develop my son as a sacrificial leader. At first, I'm going to give him something, and then I will give him someone of great value that he will be responsible to lead. And this is partially, like, again, I don't want you to hear me. I'm doing this for my daughters too, but I'm having a unique emphasis on this for my sons. Now, again, whether or not the Lord wants him to ever be a husband, is aside is a from the point. Um, but what I am going to do is I want to create inside of my sons um, the ability to be a leader so that if the Lord does call them to marriage, that this is something that comes up. All right, number two, men are designed to be fruitful providers. Here's what Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, and what might be pretty innocuous to most of us in this room, the New Testament picks up this theme of work and gives a lot of clarity to it. And so here, here's what First um, Timothy 5:8 says: "If anybody does not provide for his relatives, speaking not just of his immediate family, but um, anybody he's related to, that has needs but especially for members of his own household, his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Um, is it fair to say that God has an expectation that men would learn how to work and provide? Well, the answer is, of course, physically. And you see this throughout scripture. This is just one small example. Again, I'm cherry picking some of the highlights and bringing them to you. But here's, here's what I want you to see. That it doesn't just stop in this kind of provision. That you get to the book of Ephesians chapter five and God is talking about actually the ability for a man to provide spiritually. And here's what Ephesians five says. That the man should sanctify and cleanse his wife with the word of God. So my son may never be a great Bible teacher. My son may not be the the best communicator of God's word, but doggone it, I will train my son to handle God's word with clarity and to be able to give away that information to someone else. You don't have to be a gifted teacher to know how to actually cleanse and sanctify, to encourage, to build somebody up with the word of God. So fundamentally, to be a man is actually not just to be able to be work with your hands and make a living, but it's actually be able to build people up and take care of them spiritually. And then Ephesians 5, you see there's another level of this where it's not just physical provision, it's not just spiritual provision, but it's actually emotional, relational provision where the man is said to uh, provide for his wife by nourishing and cherishing her. Isn't that interesting? So like, by the way, you get this kid, he gets married one day. Like, does any young man by nature know how to nourish and cherish No, you gotta train him to be that. And it's interesting because there's something about masculinity that is not just about, mm, I work hard, right? It's also about being a man of God's word and knowing how to handle someone's heart. That to be a masculine person is to be able to do these things with skill. It's a very beautiful thing. And so number three, men are designed to be loving protectors. You see this right off the bat. Uh, The name for man is ish, which means strong. And that even in his very biology, God has given him this unique ability to protect, protect. And the woman, her name is Ishaha, which is soft. And uh, it's a very beautiful picture but then here's what happens. 1 Corinthians 16, one of the greatest passages of scripture. It assumes you know what he means and here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 about men. Be watchful. So right away that men are alert. Uh, we are watching. Um, by, the, by the way, this is going to be watching for any kind of um, intruders that would harm those we're responsible to care for. Stand firm in the faith. And here's what he says. Act like men. Like, it's interesting because his audience apparently knew what that meant. But in our culture, you say act like a man, and we don't know what that means. Apparently, it is our job to tell you here's what it means to be a man. A man has the ability to work and to provide spiritually and to provide emotionally for people. A man has the ability to sacrificially lead. But a man also has the ability, uh, the, the expectation to be a strong protector. He says act like men. Be strong. And the strength we've already seen is is be watchful. Be able to stand firm in the faith. You need to be physically strong as you watch for intruders, but spiritually strong as you stand firm in the faith. Act like a man. Be strong. And and then I love this as if Paul knows the, the man's almost like innate nature to overcompensate. And he says this, but let all that you do be done in love, right? And this is why we say a loving protector because it's not just about the overcompensating man, right? It's about the gentle man who can handle God's word, who can handle a woman's heart, but can also protect a woman's body, but can do it in a way that is loving. Um, I shared with you about my son many times. He's five, he's rambunctious, he's crazy, and uh, I love the kid. And uh, he uses his physical strength for the harm of his sisters on a regular basis. And I tell them, I'm like, X-Man, why did God make you strong? And I'm affirming in him from a very young age, you are physically strong. And you as a man, even if you are a weaker man, will be physically stronger than most of the women in your life. Why did God make you strong, dude? And there's only one right answer. To protect a girl's heart and her body. That's it. And he gets it, right? And so whenever he doesn't protect their heart or their body, I'm like, bro, why did God make you strong? To protect a girl's heart and In her body. I'm infusing this into my son because if I develop this young man, what I want him to know is you are given the beautiful responsibility to protect their bodies and their hearts. Now you gotta use it. This is what it means to be a man. You love them and you care for them. Now let's just say this again. Am I training my daughters to be leaders, providers, and protectors? Yeah. My daughters are gonna work harder than your daughters. My daughters are gonna be stronger than your daughters. (laughs) just kidding (laughs) yeah i know right Judy's coming after x and and v and all all right but no truly um this is not about men only and women only this is about primacy of responsibility it's about how they uniquely thrive and so if you overstate or understate this you're gonna miss the point you're gonna miss the point Uh, We're creating whole people, but understand this, that God has designed little boys and big boys to function differently and to thrive differently than he does little boys and big boys and little girls. All right, number five, let's get real controversial. Actually, I don't think anything I'm going to tell you here is controversial on this, but um, we'll see. Women thrive in their femininity when given the responsibility to be visibly strong in heart, we're going to explain this, Equal and respectful in collaboration and sacrificial and nurturing, nurturing towards someone of great value. I'm trying to get out of marriage language. We're not talking about roles in marriage. This is outside of marriage. This is just femininity, okay? Right? Um, again, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about roles and sexual attraction and all that kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about today. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna walk through each of these. And number one, women are designed by God to be visibly strong in heart. There's this beautiful passage in the book of Proverbs. Um, It talks about the the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Again, most of these are in the context of marriage, but if you're gonna get the woman who's married to be this, it helps if we can build these attributes in them before they're married, can I get an amen on that one, right? So these are things that transcend, they transcend marriage. They are fundamentally just feminine or masculine things. Now let's be clear, because again, I've got to overstate this. Am I building a son to be strong visibly in heart? Yes. Okay, here's what um, the Proverbs 31 woman, here's what it says about her. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the future. I mean, the future is of no fear for her because she has something internally that is not just internal, but it affects her very presence when she walks into a room. She has an internal fortitude and strength in her soul. The reason I believe this needs to be hyper-emphasized in our culture is because um, oftentimes, especially in the church, women are communicated or challenged to be weak and soft. And here's what I wanna say. You may be soft physically. I'm married to one of the strongest women I've ever met in my life. And in this culture, you have to have inner fortitude to make it as a lady. Can I get an amen on that one, right? Oh my goodness. I wanna raise strong, strong, daughters. Now here's what I love about the word dignity on this. Dignity has to do with the word royalty or glory. It has to do with the idea that when somebody walks into the room, you know exactly what worth they have because of how they carry themselves. Uh, You think about like a princess, right? A princess walks into the room and she just knows she's hot stuff, right? And she has dignity, if you will, right? It's the idea that what is inside of you, this strength, it doesn't just stay there so that when my daughters walk into a room, they walk into a room not just knowing their value and their worth and their confidence, but believing it and wearing that confidence on their body. We are not raising weak women who walk into rooms with insecurity so that predators and oppressive guys and men who will take advantage of them will exploit their insecurity and weaknesses. I want to raise a woman who portrays strength. Why? Because she is strong because she understands that this is a world where we don't need weak women, we need strong women with conviction and discipline. The Proverbs 31 woman is incredible because she leads, she provides, and she protects. This chick is amazing. And so I don't ever wanna lose, right? I don't wanna lose the actual strength of this woman because some scriptures can leave us feeling like women, it's your job to keep your mouth shut and be quiet. And what I wanna say is there's a time to speak and there's a time to not for men and women. But there is always a place for our inner strength. And when we walk into a room, let it never be said of us that we don't know our value and our worth, that we are made in the image of God and we are incredibly, incredibly special. And so women, I wanna put that out on the front end for you. This needs to be hyper-focused in our world at this time. Number two, women are designed to be equal, but respectful in collaboration. Remember, we're not talking about marriage here, okay? Um, Equal, but respectful in collaboration. Uh, Let let me just explain this for you, okay? Um, Sad that we have to talk about all this over and over and over again to make these points, but we'll just emphasize equal for a moment. Male and female, he created them. Are women made any less in the image of God? No. Do they have less value? No. Are they equally important in every way? The answer, of course, is yes, okay? Equal. Let's go to number two. Respectful. Um, If you noticed, generally speaking, when a man is disrespected in public, you get a strong reaction, and that when a woman is disrespected in public, there's less strength in the reaction. Uh, Again, there are different contexts behind why men and women do this, but there is something inside of a disrespected man that erupts in anger very quickly. Um, There is a need inside of a man. Don't get me wrong. Disrespect towards anybody is equally wrong always, all the time. Okay, great. But there is something about a disrespected man that erupts in a lot of anger. Like God has woven inside of a man a legitimate desire to be respected. And it's not that God hasn't given a woman that desire, but it's different. It's different. And that if you want to watch a man thrive, show him, make him believe that you truly actually do respect him. As trite as this may sound to you ladies, it's a big deal for almost every guy that I've met. And what's interesting is we find this in Ephesians 5. Paul summarizes in marriage, again, um, two basic jobs. Let's just break it all down. Husbands, love your wives. Okay? That's a good thing, right? Women, you want to get this marriage thing down? He, brings, he just says this. you got to figure out how to respect your husbands. you got to figure it out. Like If you walk through life disrespectful to authority, disrespectful to your teachers, disrespectful to your parents, disrespectful to your peers, you're going to walk into a marriage one day and it's going to be terrible because no man will put up with a disrespectful marriage. He will either erupt in anger or he will crawl into his skin and die. And so this is what we find here. And so the Apostle Paul is like, okay, ladies, this is really, really important. And in fact, it needs to be uniquely cultivated in women because of the fall. Let's go back in time, Genesis chapter 3. Again, my desire is not to be politically correct, but to allow the scriptures to describe why things are the way they are. Okay, Genesis 3, he says this. To the woman, he said, uh, this is the curse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband dudes, would you like to be married to a contrarian woman? No. But here's what's interesting, that there is something inside of women because of the fall that will uniquely propel many to be contrarian. But the men are equally as broken, right? And here's what he says about the men, um, but he shall rule over you. That somehow his sheer physical strength, you can't win. And so here's what you find. You find a woman who is contrary, a man who is ruling over, and you get conflict. Welcome to the vast majority of marriage counseling that we do. What's interesting is one chapter later, in case we're wondering at all what this means, the same words are used. And here's what it says, uh, God talking to Cain. Uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin here is, is pictured as a cat, a lion, a tiger, getting ready to pounce and devour its prey. Here's what it says. Its desire is contrary to you. It's not for you. Here, here's what you have to see. God is actually saying to women, something inside of you, is in the, is, 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 because of the sin, is wired at actually devouring your husbands if you're not careful. That's one of the negative effects of sin. And men, you need to watch out because when you experience this, something inside of you is wired to crush and rule her and oppress her. Like, this is brokenness on every level, okay? And then he says this, but you must rule over it. You must control it. And uh, here, here's what we see. Uh, one, of the, one of the fundamental attributes and qualities that we need to learn to develop in men and women, but uniquely in women, if they're gonna thrive in a marriage, is they need to learn how to respect a man, as hard as that is. Um, Genesis, or, um, collaboration, let's go to that word. Genesis chapter two, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, this word has irritated so many people. So uh, it has lost all of its magic and and grammatical, syntactical, Hebraic nuance. It's like gone. It just now just communicates oppression. Let's put the word aside for a moment. Uh, Collaborator. How's that? Okay, make you feel better? Um, Did you know that God self-identifies as a helper, the father? And is God any less than the man that he helps? No, he actually sees himself as a teammate. The Holy Spirit is called our helper, comes alongside of us and helps us with what we need. And so what we see here is that one of the realities in marriage is that God has a vision for a family. And that vision, we'll speak in Genesis terms, is to find a plot of land, subdue it, and be fruitful in that land, to see the territory that God has given you come to life. And that here's what happens that you marry a woman, and her job is to be able to come alongside and be a team player, to be a collaborator in God's vision for this family. And so, one of the things that we see because of the fall, that because of some of the contrarian nature that exists in a a lot of marriages and a lot of women, I'm going to say a lot of men too, right? Um, That we need to teach. Young women, how to be team builders, collaborators, helpers in this, respectful um, to people, and that this is part of what it means to teach people how to be feminine because the curse has broken this. Now, in the same way, has the curse broken a man's ability to love and lead and protect? The answer is yes, absolutely. And so some of the things that we focus on building are, we'll say, uh, they're, they're antidotes to the sin realities that are inside of us. Finally, number three. Women are designed by God to be sacrificial in nurturing. Sacrificial in nurturing. It's interesting because Adam um, finds finds this woman and he calls her Eve um, and also calls her mother of all the living. He calls her soft Isha and then mother. Like right at the bat, before she does anything, he looks at her body, he looks at her in general and he just says, um, you are created for different purposes than I were simply based on your biology. And uh, what he's trying to say to her is that there's something unique in you that is created to nurture and to care. That God has designed you this way on purpose and God does nothing arbitrarily and nothing randomly. And Adam just sees this woman and calls out what he sees. Um, again, you may not like how the text is written, but it's actually just written this simply to draw this simple of a conclusion. And then we get to the New Testament to one of the one of the most frustratingly misinterpreted verses like of all of them, and uh, it's from the book of First Timothy, chapter two, verse fifteen. Here's what it says. Uh, it's actually pretty funny to me, but yes, yeah, she, speaking to wives, uh, will be saved through childbearing. Okay, ladies, do you go to heaven because you bore kids? No, I mean you should because it's amazing, right? That's not what he's talking about right now. Uh, here, here's what he's saying. Look, there's a whole bunch of. I'm going to put myself in Paul's position to Timothy for a moment. Okay. All right, Timothy, you got all these women. Um, they're single, they're gossiping, they're not working, they're not doing anything, they're wasting their life. They're just they're just sitting there in a gossip circles, and this was culturally normal for the day. This is what they did. Uh, then they got married, then they didn't want to have kids and all this kind of stuff, and they're just doing their thing, and they don't have any purpose in life, and they're not bringing glory to God. And he's like, look, this culture, I understand how attractive it is for your young women, but like, we need we need to spare them from this insanity. Um, we were created for a purpose. We weren't created to be lazy bums who said on the side and just serve ourselves. So here's what I want you to tell you. If we're gonna like save our women for this, you have to encourage them to do the very things that God has said to do. Find a husband if that is the Lord's will for you and don't be afraid of being a mom because God designed you emotionally, physically, biologically, sexually, your gender, your sex, all of that to feed to this purpose. And you know what I find is that um, women who are mothers are pretty busy, right? They don't have time for gossip. And then Facebook happened and then everybody became a gossip, all right? Arr. Finally, number six, coming to a close. Why is there so much disagreement on this in the church? Michael, you speak as if it's clear, but the church I grew up in didn't agree with this. Okay, I'll give you four reasons. Number one, it's complicated in Scripture because it is assumed by the original authors. It's assumed you know it. It's assumed this is intuitive. It's assumed, you know, that men and women are complementary and that God made women to be uniquely nurturing. It's assumed. And so, so the authors don't feel the need to, to, to write a whole book on gender and a whole book on masculinity and a whole book on femininity because it's assumed. But here's what you do. When you read the books, you see their assumptions about masculinity and femininity erupt off the pages. And that's what I wanted to highlight for you. Then I give you just an inkling, just the tip of the iceberg of what is actually in the full text of scripture. Number two, why is there so much disagreement? I think we we often fail to understand how powerful our culture's pull is inside of each of us. Like, I'm amazed that scripture as a closed system is actually really undeniably clear on a couple things. Sexuality, marriage, gender, right? But we grew up in a culture right now that is telling us very different things. So it's very hard for us to agree with scripture because our culture has a very strong pull on us. Here's what that means. It makes coming to conclusions really difficult and it makes them take a lot more time. So for example, it took me probably two or three years to really come to grips with masculinity and femininity in scripture. Not because the scriptures weren't clear, but because my culture had to be dismantled and untangled so that I could actually see the word of God clearly. And so I give a lot of grace to people as they kind of work through some of these issues and try to figure it out. Uh, if it took me a couple years to, just, to untangle all that, I have a hunch it might not come just because some preacher got up and gave the best sermon you've ever heard in your life, okay? Uh, Number three, the scripture's clarity is both politically and socially inconvenient. I am profoundly amazed at how many people will not study a subject because they know the conclusions are inconvenient, will not talk about a subject because of what it will make them look like to people. And it's true. Much of the scripture's position on everything is politically and socially inconvenient but I didn't come to Christ to be convenient. I came to Christ as so I, I wanna be loving, but convenience isn't really part of it. But I wanna tell you why I think, lastly, most um, churches are having a hard time with this. What we find in the mainline denominations, many of them, not all, but many, are abandoning the authority, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of scripture. So there are actually a handful of pastors in Bartlett who would stand on this pulpit, and here's what they would tell you just like this. Um, the Bible's teaching on gender and sexuality and marriage is not relevant. They would say it was relevant for that day, but the applications need to progress. It's a living document, and we need to figure out how do these things translate to our culture in our day. They will not get up and say the Bible is the authoritative, infallible, and errant word of God, and that it is true no matter what culture you are in or what generation or millennia you live in. They won't say that. And so if, if you don't believe, and if, if, we're, if we are hearing about church after church after church that is abandoning um, biblical authority, well, that's gonna be really confusing. So you could probably say, I know 10 pastors who don't agree with you. And I would say, I, I have no doubt about that, um, But it's interesting when you start to get pastors together who agree on the authority of God's word, who agree on the inerrancy, the infallibility, there's actually so much we have in common that we really do believe many, if not all of the same things that God has made men and women different and he's made them unique, fully in the image of God. And we have this great privilege to train them in what that means. So I wanna close with this. Little church, what am I for? I'm for a vision of masculinity and femininity that allows my children to thrive and allows them to express who God has made them to be in personality and spiritual gifting and in calling in whatever culture they may live in. At the core, I'm trying to build a foundation for them that allows them to flourish as humans. Village Church, who am I? Who are you? I am whoever God says I am, both through biology and through scripture. And number three, what is the most important thing about me? The most important thing about me is that I am made in God's image, though fallen, and I am of infinite value through faith in Jesus Christ. And even even if I never trust in Jesus, I am of infinite value because I am made in the image of God. Let's pray together. Father, heavy subjects, lots of content, and um, we just, um, we do, we confess to you that this is in our day, in our age, difficult, but necessary. May we never be afraid of what your word teaches. Would you give us understanding? Would you open our minds and our hearts to really understand what your word teaches, what is masculinity, and what is femininity? And Lord, all of us, men and women and students and children in this room, we confess to you that we are sinners who have fallen short of your standards in this. And I wanna say as we get ready to partake of communion, thank you for Jesus. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name, amen.